Amen. Would you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this season, the season of Advent, where we get to celebrate your first Advent, when the Word became flesh and dwelled among us so that we could see your glory, so that we could be redeemed by the life that you lived and the death that you died, the resurrection that was yours and your ascension. Um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for these things. So I pray for today, for all of us, as we think about um, these, uh, these things that you've directed me to, uh, to say today, would you grant, Lord, that, that this sermon would serve to the end that we would be much better celebrators as Christians, um, as men, as women, as children, as people for whom Christ died and people um, right now in which the Spirit lives. Would you help us? And would you use these next few moments to do just that for the glory and for the sake of Jesus, whose name we hallow? Would you, would you work to that end, Lord? We ask it in his name. Amen. All right. Uh, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14, but we're not going to be... Um, I'm not going to have... A strict exposition today. We're not going to be tied necessarily to this text. So the title of today's sermon is Principles for Partying Like a Protestant, a bunch of peas. Because um, if you're anything like me, this is something I lack. I want to be a better celebrator. I want to be a better partier. And something in me is always keeping me from full-throated enjoyment. And so um, there was a, uh, I heard of a, um, a college football coach the other day, somebody was asking him about practice, and he said, you all think that when we're practicing, we're practicing until we get it right. And he said, but on our football team, we go out and practice so much that, to the end that we cannot get it wrong. Now, that's a, a different standard, right? So this is the idea is that we want to practice partying like real Protestant Christians uh, who really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we want to do it so much that we cannot get it wrong, okay? So, principles for partying like a Protestant. The first principle I have for you is that celebration is more fitting than somber seriousness, okay? Celebration is more fitting for the biblical Christian, for those who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and changed everything. Celebration is a more fitting thing than somber Seriousness. So pop quiz, you uh, biblical theologians, what did Israel do right after God delivered them through the Red Sea and killed all the Egyptians? What did they do? Did they fast and pray? Did they get somber and serious? We need to thank the Lord. No. Their women picked up tambourines and began to dance and sing that the horse and the rider he is cast into the sea. They celebrated we read uh, this week about Deborah when she called on Barak and he rose up and delivered God's enemies. And God used a lady named J.L. to take a tent peg and a, and a mallet and hammer his, the, their, God's enemies, hammer his head to the ground. It's kind of an amazing thing. And we might say, what, what is a Christian? What is a God-fearing woman, God-fearing people group? What do they do? When an enemy of God 
who was running away, looks like he was going to escape. He had his head literally nailed to the ground. What does a Christian do? Do we weep for the dead? Do we get very serious? Do we get very somber? No, we sing a song. God be praised because the leaders took the lead in Israel and God's people, when leaders led, God's people gave themselves willingly. They followed when God's people led and she praised God's name. There is always a celebration of the work of God. Now, here's the problem for us is that sober seriousness feels more holy to us than laughter and feasting, merriment and frivolity. Okay, so so picture this in your mind's eye. You've got one room full of people who are praying quietly. Maybe in this room, we're all praying, heads bowed, eyes closed, whispering prayers to the God of heaven. Compare that with another room full of people, a glass of red in one hand and a giant fried turkey leg in the other hand. And they've got juice on their face. They've got, there's food all around and they are singing, they're laughing. Which is more holy? Which is more pleasing to the Lord? Well, that depends, doesn't it? It depends. Why are you reveling? Why are you feasting? Are you feasting to the Lord? Are you feasting in the presence of the Lord? Because if you are, that's just as holy as a prayer meeting. And if you're, if you're praying somber prayers of serious saints who do not know that the joy of the Lord is their strength, does that prayer meeting please the Lord? I'm not so sure. Celebrating is part of what it means to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me give you a fact. In the Old Testament, there was only one day out of 365 days where God's people in the law were mandated to fast and afflict their souls and to get somber and to get serious about sin and about holiness and about the fact that we, we failed to live up to God's standards one day out of 365. Every single week, it was mandated that you rest and rejoice in the redemption that was yours in Israel through the Sabbath. At once a month in New Moon, you were commanded to go out and feast with your neighbors. Three times a year, you were commanded to go to Jerusalem and feast. And they were all celebratory feasts. Okay? So you have, in Israel, you have one day a year of somber seriousness. Of afflicting your souls and fasting. And every single other holiday was to be a festival of highest joy and celebration. Now, what does that tell us? What does that tell us about, about God? And, oh, by the way, those people didn't even know what their coming redemption was going to look like. They knew that God was going to deal with their sin. They knew that God was going to fulfill his covenant promises. But they didn't know the form it would take. They didn't know what we know, that his name was Jesus. That he was born in a, in a manger. That he lived perfect obedience on our behalf. Died to pay for sin and rose from the dead. They're looking forward just saying, God is going to do something amazing. We're just going to trust him. And most of their most of their holy days were festival, were, were celebratory. There was only one that was fasting. Now, what does it mean for us now in the New Testament that Christ is both hindsight, meaning we can look back and see what God did through Christ to, to rescue us. So Christ is hindsight, and he's also the day after tomorrow hope. Like, Jesus might come back before the sermon is ended. He's 
imminent hope for tomorrow. So he's past security. He is future glory. And there's nothing that can impact that. And somehow we're supposed to be more somber and serious than Old Testament saints that hadn't seen the redemption. Makes no sense at all. So celebration is more fitting for the Christian than somber seriousness. Secondly, if you're going to party like a real Protestant, you need to party in the presence of Christ. Okay? So here's a faith-based axiom. Party, feast, revelry, joy, rest, anything that you would put in there, all of those things with Jesus is better than all of those things without Jesus. Okay? Um, Now, this is hard, right? This is... Nobody would verbally disagree with that. Everybody would say, because we're Sunday school Christians, of course that's right. Like everything with Jesus is better than those things without. But, but, if you are honest, you, you can see in your bones, down in your soul, some idea that just maybe my love for feasting, my love for a good joke, my love for like, relaxation and kicking my feet up that Jesus might not be comfortable there. I might make him somewhat uncomfortable. Now, think about this with me for for a moment. Once upon a time, Jesus was teaching a crowd and they were pressing in on him. And so he goes to Peter and he says, hey, get get me in your boat and put out just a little way so that I can benefit from the principle that I put into existence when I created the world by by my word. Like, Uh, The wind is going to come off the Sea of Galilee and my words are going to carry to my people. And so he gets in the boat and he teaches them and it's this glorious thing. Now when he's done, he says, okay, now put out to sea. This is Luke 5. Put out to sea and let your nets down. Peter says, Lord, we've toiled all night long. And he explains to Jesus why it's not called catching, it's called fishing. Like sometimes you try really hard and you don't get it. We've been toiling all night long, but he said, at your word, I'll do it. So he lets his net down. And the text says that when they caught such a great number of fish that their nets were breaking, so he calls his partner. So he's got uh, Peter and Andrew. They call their partners, James and John, to come over in their boats, two boats. And when they load all the fish, both boats were sinking because of the catch. Now think about this, you who are on, or, uh, you who are business owners. You've had... You've just had the greatest professional day of your life. You've never had this kind of catch. You've never had this kind of money that you're going to be able to go and turn into fish, that you're going to be able to go and turn into money. You have this mass, like all of the debts that you've been stressed about, all of the taxes, which Peter was certainly stressed about, all of these things, God just wiped them off. What do you want to do? Do you want to go home and get on your knees and fast and pray? Or do you want to go open a beer and toast your buddies and say, look what God did. What do normal people want to do? They want to celebrate. It's very interesting to me that Peter, at that moment, falls on his knees in front of Christ and says, do you know it? Depart. Depart from me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man, Lord. We think that our Joy, our frivolity, our love for rest, relaxation, our love for pie is somehow inappropriate to to enjoy in the presence of Jesus. And that's just false. I remember one time, I've been here maybe three years, 
somebody that was going to our church at the time invited me over to a party at their house and um, it was an inside and outside party. I've been outside. I came inside and I just walked in and somebody was walking to the refrigerator and they said, hey, uh, uh, can, I, can I grab a beer out of here? And the, the, the master of the feast said, um, I, and I'll never, I'm like over in the corner and he goes, is Pastor Will here? Did he leave yet? Now, this is a guy who had heard me three or four times say, There's, there is a problem with drunkenness. But there's not a problem with the thing that makes you drunk. It's your own sinful heart. It's not the beer. It's not the whiskey. It's your sinful heart. He had seen that. But there's something about like, okay, before we can really let our hair down, we've got to get, which I'm not Jesus in this scenario, by the way. But there's something there that just thinks we can't really relax until, until Christ is, is not present with us. I think it's a... Um, something that we carry around, we would never say we would never say it, but we feel it that Jesus is maybe too holy to be a merrymaker, and so we tend to party without Him, lest our party be hampered by His holiness. But here's the problem: we're forgetting the incarnation. The incarnation means that there's no longer a bifurcation between heaven and earth, where they're just separated categor- categorically. That's heavenly stuff. This is earthly stuff. No, the word was made flesh and he dwelled among us. And when he did, the somber seriousness and sinful religious folks of his day called him a drunkard and a glutton. Why would they call him a drunkard and a glutton? What does that assume? It assumes that he drank and it assumes that he ate and it assumes, well, it doesn't assume that he did this, but we know that he did this with what kind of people? Tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes that he dwelt with them and ate with them. That's the kind of man who gets called a drunk and a glutton by the religious folk. One who is seen rejoicing uh, in the Lord with the stuff, knowing they are being watched by those who have a problem with partying. That's Christ. He did all of these things knowing that the religious people were going to attack him for it. But he did it anyway. So party in the presence of Christ. Third, Anything worth doing, this is a Martin family motto. It comes from G.K. Chesterton. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Did you know that? That is a fact. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Kelsey, how is, uh, when you're teaching piano, what does day one look like for a little kid on piano? Is it, uh, is it Mozart? No, it is not. It's painful. Uh, Kendall, what was your what was your first day of violin like? Probably bad enough where if we were listening, we should say, you know, you should just give that up because that's hard to listen to, right? <laughs> Terrible. Uh, first meal to ever cook, right? Did you screw it up? Have you ever screwed it up? Of course you have. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. You cannot celebrate well. Celebration is the same the same idea. You cannot celebrate well unless you practice. This is why weekly rhythms of, of, of work and then rest and of celebration, of, of festival, of Christian celebrating is practice for high holidays. Okay, so factoring in weekly feasting, new moon festivals, yearly feasts, a 20-year-old Jewish man, if he has been faithful 
to the Lord and to the word. He has partied in the presence of Yahweh more than the average American parties in a lifetime. Can I tell you that? Just an Old Testament saint, 20 year old Jewish guy whose family walked in accordance with obedience to the law. He at 20 has partied more in the presence of God than the average American does in a lifetime. That's a shame. That is a shame. So, sometimes our efforts to party come up lame, but keep at it, and you'll get better. Um, yeah, so, this week we had a bunch of our family, and we wanted it to be great, and it was really, really fun. Could it have been better? Yes, it could have, but it was a whole lot better than some of the lame sauce parties that we've tried in the past when we were trying to figure out how to celebrate, okay? So, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality, but we live in a world where if you can't come out of the gate at top speed, you are discouraged from even trying. Hey, you wrote a story? Mm, it wasn't great. You should probably give it up, right? If you can't start at absolute excellence, our culture is very quick to, to just discourage you and say, you better give it up. This is the essence of foolishness. Try fail, try again, fail again, and eventually you'll get better at it. This applies to all things, but it's especially useful for those of us who want to celebrate the redemption of Christ adequately. Okay? Proposition. What if Christians in Fayette County had a reputation for being the greatest partiers the world has ever seen? So, so we always think about, like, what should your church be known for? It certainly should be known for the preaching of the Word of God, for for true, pure, unadulterated gospel truth pitched high and tight, okay? Those are things for love, for all of those things. We have to be known for those things. But what if we just decided we want to be the best partiers in the county? How might the Lord use that for his glory? How might the Lord use that for his glory? Remember that the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Okay? So celebrate badly if that's the best you can do. Fourth, beware and be wise concerning idolatry uh, of the first and second order. This is a category given to me within the last month, and it is immensely helpful. So there are two types of idolatry. There's first order idolatry and second order idolatry. So first order is... We ask the lions to use your, um, your metal cutting machine, right, to, to, to cut us out a statue. And then we erect it right here at the altar and we say, behold your gods, O Israel. And we say, come and kneel and, and give and sacrifice your young to it, right? So this is idolatry of the first order. What is the only way to, to respond to that? It's to do what Gideon did, to tear it down, to do what Moses did, to grind it up, throw it in the water and make people drink it. To destroy it. You don't, you don't say, hey, it shouldn't be here. It should be off maybe in, a, in another place. You absolutely destroy it. This is idolatry of the first order. But there are, there's a second order of idolatry that's very different. It's when you take a good gift that God gives and you exalt it and you get your identity from it, your sense of security from it, your joy from it. So it's a good gift, but you've made it into a little g God. Now, what do you do when you want to repent over a second order of idolatry? You cannot do away with it because it's a good gift. So let me give you a couple of examples. Alcohol. Some people um, 
like cannot do life without alcohol. It's got to be everywhere. It's, 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 a, it's a mainstay in all of our stuff. And so we might say, uh, you realize I've been, I've been abusing it, and so you want to repent, and you want to, if you treat it like a first-order idolatry and you try and get rid of it like some of the teetotalers do, you have a huge problem. And do you know what it is? Communion. Because Christ invites you to come to the communion table and to take wine and bread. And so there's, you, what you need to do in repentance over alcohol is you need to figure out how to rightly relate to it. Another uh, big second-order idolatry is money. You might say, well, we live in a materialistic society. I tend to be greedy. Listen, it is not money's fault. It's your own sinful and wicked heart. And so when you repent of it, you might say, let's say that God has given you all sorts of wealth and you've been greedy and it's become an idol that you get your sense of, um, of worth and belonging by your, by your money. And you might say, okay, I'm ready to repent over that. Do you give all your money away and treat it like the statue of Baal? You can try, but guess what you're going to do tomorrow? You're going to be managing money. So you got to eat, right? And so it's still something that's going to be with you altogether. And so those second tier idolatries, when you repent over them, it looks like more than just torching them. You have to figure out how to honor God with them. How is food used in the Bible? We use it to eat ourselves to death. In the Bible, it's used for survival and for enjoyment, materialism, right? Um, we we look at Christmas holiday and and, uh, and hate Walmart for like being before um, before Thanksgiving. They're already playing Christmas music to like talk us into buying things, and we rightly repudiate that. But the reality is, you can't celebrate Christ, uh, Christmas rightly without stuff. You have to. You have to uh, use the stuff to celebrate the incarnation, okay? So, this is what we have to do. We have to, we have to look at the way that we have made idols out of good gifts that God has given, and we have to put them in their proper place. You can't torch good gifts that God has given. You have to manage them in a way that is good uh, and then God-glorifying, okay? So, repenting over idolatry of the second order means learning to honor God with all the gifts that he gives, not throwing the gifts in the river, all of them. So if you've been given a good gift, manage it well for the glory of God. Fifthly, tell the story, okay? Tell the story. This is the importance of what's called catechism. Catechism is the idea that a kid is gonna say, hey, what does this mean? And then a dad is gonna explain what that means. So all throughout the Old Testament, when you see uh, how Israel is prescribed to celebrate the Passover, one of the mainstays, is a kid is going to say, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? And a dad is going to say, I'll tell you. Because our ancestor was a pagan worshiper of the moon, and God, by sovereign grace, called him into covenant fellowship and led him to a new land and gave him gifts and gave him land and seed and blessing. And then he brought us out of, out of Egypt. So they tell the story. It is massively important that we tell the story because if you don't, somebody else will. Okay? Um, this happened recently during, uh, during Halloween. There's this rumor out there that, that uh, Halloween is a pagan holiday created by the Satanists and the witch doctors and all those things, or the witches. None of that is true. Halloween is our holiday. It's a Christian holiday. They, our four ancestors, that's why it's called All Hallows' Eve, 
On the eve of All Saints Day, we got together and we dressed as goblins and ghouls and demons and all these things that would otherwise terrify us. And we walked in and we made a celebration around Colossians 2. That Jesus, by his crucifixion and resurrection, triumphed over sin, Satan, death, hell. And, and made an open, put them to open shame, the text says. And so the church got together and said, we want a holiday where we're going to celebrate this. And of course, the secularists jumped in and tried to steal some things from us because we didn't tell our stories. Same thing with Christmas. You always hear this, right? That Christmas is rooted in a pagan holiday called Saturnalia. You heard this, right? It's Roman. It's a Roman holiday that where there's, you know, pagan orgies and all these things. And the Christians got nervous and we're reactive. And so we said, hey, we will celebrate the birth of Christ on Saturnalia and try and steal some of the glory. None of that is true. There is no historic evidence that, that the Romans ever celebrated Saturnalia until Christians all over the empire celebrated the birth of Christ at Christmas. And they said, they were the, react, uh, the reacting ones saying, we've got to do something about this Christian holiday, so let's create a holiday where there's tons of sensuality, all these things, and try and win some of the people. By the way, when's the last time you've seen somebody celebrating Saturnalia? It doesn't happen. But what do you hear all the time at this time of year? Merry Christmas. We win. We win. Because Christ is risen from the dead and the pagans, the pagan gods are all fake. So tell, tell the story. Tell the story. Why do we do this? Well, let me tell you why we do this. Tell the story so that others won't. And also along this line, be the story. Okay. Um, this, uh, this hit me uh, this week. We had a table full of family and friends, and I want to be directing our affections to the Lord and directing conversation to the Lord. And so there's this conversation that was not evil conversation. It was just conversation going back and forth. People were laughing. People were having a good time. And I felt like, man, I wonder if I should, I wonder if I should like um, interrupt and maybe read some Bible or interrupt and maybe pray. And the thought came to my mind, no. Like, Jesus Christ, now this may sound like blasphemy, but please follow me closely, that Jesus Christ is seated at the table. Point to the body of Christ, would you? Point to where you can bump into the body and the bride of Christ. If you're married, just point at your spouse. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is at the table. So be the story. Like, be in the conversation as a representative of Christ. You don't, have to, you don't have to interrupt good conversation to go pray and to go read. All those are good things. But oftentimes that, uh, that just kills a good vibe. No, just be, in the, just be in the conversation. Be a normal human being who loves Jesus and who tells good stories. So be the story. Tell the story. Be the story. All right. Sixth. I'm almost done. Spend the money. Spend the money. So I had you turn to Deuteronomy. I want to read this with you. And I'm going to point something out to you. Um, some of you are glad that this was not a sermon on tithing. Well, look in uh, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. We'll just read this together and make a couple, couple observations. You shall tithe. Tithe literally means a tenthing. You take a tenth of everything and you do something with it. So the tithe, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the presence that he will choose to make his name dwell, there you shall eat the tithe of your grain, your wine, and your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, 
that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So a, a little known thing, a, a fact about the tithe is there was two tithes. There was 10% that you just gave to the temple for the sake of the Levites. And then there was another 10th that you were to keep back and you ate it. You ate it in festival celebration before the Lord. And so he gives um, how to do this because uh, you're only supposed to do it in Jerusalem. And you may live, you know, up in Dan or down in Beersheba. If the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you. So check that out. Like, he's been so good to you, you can't take it all. So what do you do? He says, um, verse 25, then you shall turn it into money. You shall sell it and bind up that money in your hand and then go to what ends up being Jerusalem. And verse 26, spend the money for what? What does it say? Spend the money on what? You tell me. Verse 26. It's going to get really awkward. I'm not going for it until somebody shouts it out. Spend the money for what? You desire. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Thank you. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves. Who made your appetite, Christian? Satan, right? No, God made your appetite. So whatever your appetite craves, buy it with tithe money. And you shall eat it before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your town, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce. In the same year, lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands, uh, the work of your hands that you do. So spend the money, okay? Part of Israel's mandate, mandated covenant obedience was to give a tithe and to eat a tithe. So you should probably... Although we're not under the law, the law is not our master, but the law is our model. And so we want to look at some of these kingdom generosities and, and kingdom principles and apply them as the Spirit would lead. Um, and so we want to celebrate with a big chunk of our income. So think about this. Boaz, we talked about this when I preached Ruth, but you've forgotten. And so Boaz was an Old Testament saint who, who obeyed the law. So he gave a tithe, he ate a tithe, he left the corners of his field unharvested for the, for the widow, for the fatherless. Everything that while they're harvesting fell to the ground, you leave it, you don't touch it, so that somebody who, who's hungry comes along. And then Boaz, when he sees this sojourner Moabite stranger gleaning in his field, says, who is this? He finds out who she is, why she's there, and he prays for her. And he says, may the Lord bless you and reward you for your kindness to the dead and to, and to Naomi. And then he doesn't do what James says not to do. James says, don't just say to a brother who's naked and hungry, go, be, be fed and be clothed. What does James say to do? Do it. Like, say that. May the Lord bless you and clothe you and feed you. And then be the answer to the prayer. So Boaz having given what, what many scholars think is between 20 and 25% of his income right off the top, he goes and tells Ruth, do not go anywhere else. I want to own your generosity. You come to my field, I'll protect you. You take what's mine. And he lavishes her with 
uh, with grace and with goodness, okay? Um, I recently, uh, y'all can judge me if you want to, but while our family was down, um, my sister and my brother-in-law, uh, they have kids too, and they don't get to uh, go on dates very often. And so Gracie was like, we gotta, we gotta take them on a, on a double date. So we took them to one of the greatest dive bars you've ever been to. It's in LaGrange, it's awesome. And we were there and I went up to settle with uh, the, the bartender and there was an old man sitting by himself at the bar. And so as I'm waiting for the bartender, I'm like, hey man, how you doing? 30 minutes later, we're chatting at the bar, it was awesome. This guy was very cool. So he's an older guy all by himself. Um, this guy grew up in Fort Worth, right around uh, where I'm from. So that was kind of kind of cool to like um, have some uh, have some familiarity with him. But he uh, he joined um, he joined the military right out of high school. Uh, worked his way as high up as he could. He got his he got both degrees while he was in the military. Um, as an enlisted man, he worked his way as high as he could, and then he retired. So he's a retired military guy. Then he uh, went back to Fort Worth and worked in the sheriff's department from which he retired. So twice now retired, super diligent guy. Then met a girl in Fayette County, moved down here, got a job with the sheriff's department up in Austin, worked till he could retire from there. And then he just got word. So now he's been just messing around uh, with the school district in, in LaGrange and they just sent him a letter saying, hey, you're, you're ready to retire and this is what you can expect of us. So he retired from four different institutions, all of which gave a pension. All the while, he's been diligent to invest in the stock market, diligent to buy land and houses and all these things. This guy is multimillionaire, just sitting at the bar. And he's, I, uh, he said he's moving back to Fort Worth. He's got to liquidate some pro uh, property first and then go. And so just sort of in a joking fashion, I said, hey, man, like you've got all the money in the world. You're moving back home. No job. Like you've got it made, right? He goes, do I? Do I have it made? Do I have it made? He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. They told me all my life to work hard and to save, but nobody ever told me to live. Nobody ever told me to live. And he said, now I don't know how. So I asked him, if you could change something, if you could go back, change something, what would you do? He said, he said I would say, still work hard and save but do not neglect living your life. Here's this old man who has the American dream. He has more money than, you know, he knows what to do with. But he doesn't know what to do with it because that's all of his life has been acquire, 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 and for what end? And he said, I'm gonna give my two kids massive wealth, but it's only a portion of what I've got. You know who's gonna get the rest? And I was like, I don't know, who? The government. Like, I'm... I'm Getting all of this, I've amassed all of this wealth to absolutely no end. So listen to me. Your money will be spent on something. And the only bit of it you get that you can take with you into eternity is what you spend on the kingdom. Fact. All of your money will be spent. The only bit of it that you can take with you into the kingdom is that what you have spent on the kingdom, on the kingdom itself. I can't tell you how much to spend. Listen to me. Nobody can tell you how much to spend. But I can tell you that you ought to set aside something for holiday enjoyment. Don't go into debt, but don't believe the lie that frugality and holiness are always bedfellows because they are not. Frugality and holiness do not always go hand in hand, right? We love Dave Ramsey. Live like nobody else so that you can crest the top and then you can live like nobody else. But here's something that he doesn't tell you. 
If you live like nobody else without reference to how to honor God with your wealth and your life, when you get there, you won't know how to do it. And you'll fail. And you'll realize that it's just one of another ways that you can live your life apart from honoring God. So spend the money. Be generous. Be generous with your family. Be generous with the poor, the widow, the orphan. Be generous. Seventh. I'm almost done. I only have eight. Seventh. Sing the songs. Sing the songs. Um, the best part. I watched it again uh, this week. The best part of Casey's wedding, contrary to popular belief, was not my great sermon. Okay, Everybody thought it was my great sermon, and they were almost right, but it wasn't. The greatest part of her wedding ceremony was when Aaron said, lift your hands in their barn. And a mob of us lifted our hands and sang the doxology. We sounded like an army, and it was amazing. It was the best part. It was the best part. Um, I, I heard a story this week, 1582, a guy named John Dury. He was a, um, he was a Scottish Protestant reformer. And he was thrown into prison. And when they let him go, he started walking out, uh, out of town. And he was like the, a mob sort of slowly gathered around him. It started with, you know, tens and twenties and then hundreds. And then by the time he got to the edge of town, there were, a, there were over a thousand people with him. And somebody started singing one of the Psalms. I can't remember. I think it's Psalm 124. Do you, do you, anybody? Okay. Probably Psalm 124. We don't know. Somebody started singing a song and they sang it in four part harmony. Like a great choir, just as they're walking, rejoicing in the fact that their leader did not get killed. And one of the greatest persecutors of the church in Scotland heard that. And they said, that's the most terrifying thing we've ever seen is the Protestants singing together. Okay. Jehoshaphat's battle strategy was to sing. So we need to be singers of the songs. Okay. We've got to sing the songs. And lastly, eighth is gather for worship. Gather for worship. We need rhythms of worship if we are to party like real Protestants. We need to gather together in the same place at the same time and worship the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We need the public reading of Scripture. We need the lifting of our hands to pray. We need the word preached. We need to be baptized. We need to eat the Lord's Supper. These are the things we need, and we know that we need them because God has mandated all of them. So this table is Christmas in a nutshell, and oh, how we need it. The presence and the person of Christ handled with undeserving hands. The bread of heaven come down for us. The word of promise, which tastes very good. So sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, sing all you citizens of heaven above, glory to God, all glory in the highest. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Oh, come, welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you grant this Advent season where we build an anticipation of celebrating uh, your birth of a virgin, born of a virgin, conceived by the Spirit, um, as we build toward, toward adequately celebrating that, we ask that you would, in every sense of the word or the phrase, that you would become 
the life and the soul of the party. Would you teach us, O oh Lord, how to relax, how to rest, how to rejoice, how to tell a good joke, how to give people ridiculous nicknames that make people laugh. Um, would, you, would you teach us, Lord, how to love one another, how to honor you in the stuff, how to spend the resources that you give us to steward in a way that brings you glory and gladness? Would you richly gift us during this season so that we, so that you through us might be able to richly bless others? God, would you grant that this would be the sweetest and the most enjoyable uh, Christmas that we've ever known. God, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you for two, uh, two future babies that are uh, about to be born in our congregation um, right around the Christmas holiday where we get to see a picture of the ridiculous condescension of Almighty God to be born a babe in Bethlehem. Would you help us to see all of these things? Lord, we pray now as we come to the table and we handle the bread and we drink the wine. God, would you, Holy Spirit, would you, um, would you grant that these things would fill us with joy as they ought and that we could go out celebrating. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.